Incidences, coincidences uh, when God decides to be anonymous. And 20 years ago, I just started our work uh, here and had no resources, nothing. I will just take, go by faith. And one morning, I was in Atlanta and I was supposed to fly in the afternoon. I woke up to pray and I felt very strongly that God was calling me to go to the airport early. I didn't know why my flight was in the afternoon. But in those days, they would let you change your ticket. So I just went. I sat. I was tired. And I saw a bunch of folks, country folks, just coming into the plane. And they were just a little bit rowdy. You know, and I thought, maybe these guys have been drinking or something. <laughs> and, and beside me, you know, a gentleman just came and sat by me. And he just wanted to talk. And it was too early for me. And I said, I'll say, will this guy shut up a little bit so I could <laughs> rest? He was asking me questions and questions, and a meal was served. In those days, they served meals in the plane. They brought some meal. I ate mine, just a few bites. I, he looked at me and said, my wife fixed me something this morning before I left, so I'm not hungry. Will you like mine? I said, sure. I ate his too. And he looked at me, he later told me, said, I thought, boy, he must have been hungry, you know. But in those early days, uh, I had nothing and just went by faith. And that's how our relationship began. Uh, Pastor Kenny gave me his card and said, hey, whenever you're in the area, come and visit. And I looked at the map, you know, he, he didn't believe I would ever come. It took me quite, was it a year or so, and... One day, I just thought I was in Atlanta, and I said, I will just go there and see, you know. And I didn't want to go at the beginning of the church. I went after the services had started. I walked at the door. Everybody was already in, and he saw me said, come forward. And uh, took me home after service and fed me. And the rest, like they say, is history. You know, I was on a fast in those early days, and after... I went to his home, they fed me, I just forgot about fasting, and you can see, you know, what I've become. Uh, they feed me each time I come and take care of me, and have been a big part of our support network in the U.S., uh, we're just so thankful uh, for that. I call him dad, and he's been that way in every sense of the word, uh, just so thankful. Uh, like I say, each time I come here, English is not my first language. It's not my second language. It's not my third language. I'm from Cameroon where we speak uh, about 250 native languages and over 1,000 dialects. And so the average Cameroonian you meet speaks at least four languages. English is just one of them. We speak French and English. We're discovered by the Portuguese, colonized by the Germans. And after the uh, the Second World War, all territories were taken from Germany. So our country was divided into two. Three quarters was given to France to colonize, and one quarter was given to England to colonize. And uh, so after independence in 1960, we merged back. So three, three quarters of the country speaks French and their native languages, and the other part speaks English and their native languages. And uh, uh, but Cameroon has been trying to practice what you call bilingualism. We speak, there's two major languages, English and French, in addition to our native languages. Uh, so in our country right now, because of that, uh, uh, Washington Post just had a documentary 
uh, title divided by two languages. There's a big divide in our country right now, um, something like almost a war in one part of the country uh, because of the language uh, problems. And so thousands, the last three years, thousands of people have been killed. Over 500,000 people have left homes because of the war in the English part of the country. The English part is trying to secede and form its own nation. Uh, I personally don't think that's a solution, but that's what is going on right now. So there's just been a lot of killing and fighting, and over 500 people have been, uh, 500,000 have been displaced. Some have gone to neighboring countries, and then others are in the French-speaking part of the country. So as you pray, pray for Cameroon. Uh, our concern is that sooner or later there may be a genocide, because those who have fled to the English, uh, French-speaking part of the country, you know, uh, people may just start doing things to them. We're not really sure, but we're just praying that the country stays together. Some people think uh, dividing, uh, you know, forming another nation is a solution, but we don't believe that's a solution. So we're praying for that nation and praying for peace. Uh, but that's just a little bit about Cameroon. Uh, our work is continuing. We're about to celebrate our 25th anniversary to actually be next year of our of when Bread for Life, which I lead, started. Um, we've been going on for 25 years, so on the 22nd of March, we'll be celebrating in Kerrville, where my base is, and then next year, we'll do a major celebration of several outreaches in Cameroon. So we'll want, uh, where's Pastor Mark? Yeah, we want you guys to put a team together and come and help. Uh, it's been many years now since Pastor uh, Pastor. Owen came, so I hope uh, he's able to come again. We're actually, we have two major projects right now that we're working on. A school in Douala, which is the economic capital with over three million people. About six, uh, four years ago, we discovered our youngest son was autistic, and there was nothing, nobody doing anything in the country. Our only option was to move back to the U.S., but I began praying. I sensed God wanted us to stay in Cameroon, so... We just started in our home. We didn't have any, you know, teaching him and doing whatever we could. And before we knew it, other people were bringing their children to our home, autistic kids. And, you know, our house just became a school. And three years ago, we rented a place and started a school for special needs children. We started with 15 uh, children and 10 teachers. And the school has evolved to what you call a model school with over... 50 young people right now and over uh, 19 staff. And uh, we're building, so if you're a retired teacher, I'm talking to Lynn, you know, <laughs> who wants you to come and help. If you, uh, we're lo actually looking for speech uh, pathologists or speech therapists and occupational therapists and teachers of all kinds to just come on a short-term basis to come and work with our teachers and help them. Uh, most of our teachers are not really trained, so... That's one of the things we're doing. Uh, we're hoping next year to be able to buy a place and start building a model school. So, and then we're also developing a major farm in the country, uh, in the eastern part of the country, among the Baka Pygmies. Uh, uh, one of the biggest problems in our country is unemployment. Over 70% of the country of the people are unemployed. And so uh, ministry has got to take a complete different shape. And so we're trying to build in such a way that we're doing ministry, but at the same time we're providing services, creating jobs while simultaneously generating revenue for continuity. So 
one of our major projects in the east is uh, the farm. Uh, we started with 250 acres. We're doing everything manually. And, uh, but uh, we, last year, we were able to you know, plant about 50,000 pineapples uh, in just two acres of land, two and a half acres of land. Uh, this year, we want to extend that to maybe about, uh, generally about 50 to 60,000 or feet, two and a half acres. Our goal is this year to expand that to maybe about five acres. And, and next week, we'll start harvesting. I think next week, we'll probably be harvesting about 400 pineapples, and the next few uh, months, we'll be harvesting. And so we've created jobs for 30 people who had absolutely nothing to do. We're experimenting with potatoes. We've just planted a little bit, and uh, we're building in such a way that it will become sustainable and so that we're not just perpetuating dependence on Western benevolence, but we're also building in such a way that we're also at a given end. We're thankful for what the blessings America has been to us and all of the gifts uh, this country. But the question is how long will this continue? When you have a child and the child is 40 and the child is still at home dependent on you, you should be asking not just what is wrong with this child, but what did we do wrong? And a lot has happened. Mission has been in our part of the world for 70 years that the gospel has reached, more than 70 years, but we're still dependent on Western benevolence. So we want to build in such a way that we'll also be at the giving end. So these are some of the projects we're doing right now. The last uh, 25 years, we've planted over uh, two dozen churches, you know, and some of these churches have in turn planted other churches. Uh, so we're just so thankful, but it's as a result of the support we get uh, from you and the blessings uh, we get from our friends. We're so thankful. Uh, don't want to take much time this morning. Uh, somebody gave me a verse when I was in seminary, but the verse says, Blessed are those who bring short messages, for they shall be invited back. So I want to be a little bit brief this morning. In our part of the world, we don't really have any concept of time. You know, uh, we say Americans have watches and they don't have time. Africans don't have watch and they have all the time. Usually our messages are elastic. The services are about three hours, four hours, and, you know, and you've been there. We just go on and on and on and on. But, uh, you know, somebody told me, said, if you do that, everybody will walk away. So before you do that this morning, I'll try to be brief. I'm glad I was asking for a watch and I have one here, so I'll, I'll be a little bit brief, you know. Uh, I don't want to take much of our time. I want us to turn to the book of Matthew chapter 9, and we'll read just two verses. We'll read from verse 36 and 30, uh, three verses, 36 to 38. Let's, let's read. But when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion on them, because they were faint and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. Then he said unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into the harvest. Let's pray. Father, this morning I recognize my inadequacies, my inabilities, but I also recognize you who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly beyond what I even think or ask. And so I ask that the next few minutes that you speak to me, speak through me, and speak to your people, to the end, O God, that not only will they be challenged, 
but that they will be changed to be agents of change in a world that needs change so badly, I pray. Bless your word this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk to us very briefly on what I titled, Four Things, Four things God Expects of You or Us. Four Things God Expects of Us. You see, all of us have expectations. We have expectations of ourselves, expectations of our spouses, expectations of our children, expectations of our parents, expectations of our employers, expectations of our employees. We all have expectations. Some of them are realistic. Some of them are not realistic. But whatever the expectations are, God, the fact is God also has expectation of his of you and I, of his body, the church. His expectations are fixed. They are never changing. What does God expect of us? Uh, let me give you a background of this verse here. We see Jesus going about, you know, like the scripture tells us, he was going from city to city teaching in synagogues and preaching about the kingdom, the rule and reign of God and healing the sick. In verse 22, we saw him heal the woman with the issue of blood. In verse, the next verse, we saw him heal uh, a young girl who, who had died, uh, raised her back from the dead. He healed, uh, scripture tells us in verse 27, that he healed two blind men. And he healed others who were possessed with demons. Then we come to verse 20, uh, 36. It begins with an injunction, birth. And every time there is an injunction in Scripture, God is trying to say something to us. He says, birth, birth. He's saying, after he had done all of this, he came to this injunction and said, birth. When he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion. Every time God sees, he's moved with compassion. He's touched with compassion. The scripture tells us in another passage that when he saw the multitude, the 5,000, he was moved with compassion. And he said, do you have anything for me to feed them? And the disciple says, oh, look, we've just got a few loaves and a few fishes. Jesus said, bring it to me. And when we give to God, God basically does four things with everything that is given to him. The scripture tells us in that other passage where he fed the multitude that he took, he blessed, he broke he multiplied. Every life that is given to God, God takes. He takes it. You and I are blessed by virtue of being taken, being in God's hand. But God progressively moves from, you know, taking us and blessing us. The next thing he does is he breaks. And that's where most of us stop. You know, we don't go through the breaking process. And no wonder God cannot use us. God breaks. You know, a life that is broken is a life that is multiplied. God took, he blessed, he broke, he multiplied. But in this passage here, you know, we're told that when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion, as he always does. Then said he unto the disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest. That he will send forth laborers. What does God expect from you and I? Number one, he expects us to see something. 
God expects you and I to see something. He expects you and I to see the multitude. He expects you and I to see the abandoned child on the street. He expects you and I to see the drug dealer. To see the one suffering, struggling with drug and other issues. As God expects us to see something. Are you seeing what I see? Are you seeing what God sees? God saw the multitude and scripture tells us he was moved with compassion. He expects us to see those who are desperate. He expects us to see those who are in need of salvation. We're told that every minute 90 people die without Christ. That's 900, and over 900,000 die every week without Christ. 1 million, 1.2 million die every week, you know, uh, uh, according to statistics. The church needs to see the multitude. You and I need to be moved with the multitude. God expects us to see. Number two thing God expects from us is he expects us to feel something. He expects us to be moved with compassion. The scripture tells us when he saw the multitude, he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion. God expects you and I to feel something, to feel, to empathize. You see, there's a difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is when you, you feel for somebody, but empathy is when you feel for somebody, you feel with them, you put yourself in their situation. God expects us to feel something. A story is told several years ago of Kevin Carter. You could Google that name up. You know, during the war in Somalia, this guy was so focused in taking photographs. He took one of the best photographs that made that one one of the greatest award in photography. But in the course of taking the photography of a child who was hungry, a starving child, that child was starving and that child eventually died. A hawk was flying and just bit the child and he took this picture which made, uh, I think he, he got the award for the best photography that year. A few years later and the child died in his presence. You see, he saw something but he did not feel anything. And a few years later we're not told whether it's because of this child who died but he committed suicide. Can you imagine? He saw something, but he did not feel something. He was so focused on his work that he saw a child died without him because he did not empathize, he did not feel anything. God also expects us to know something. You know, he expects us to know. And what are we supposed to know? The harvest. The harvest is plenteous. That the harvest is abundant. You know, there's so much... The problem is, and what is the problem? Workers, that there are very few workers. God is looking for, he's not looking for tourists, he's not looking for observers, he's looking for workers. He's looking for workers. 1.3 billion people in India. 1.2 billion people in Africa. 74 million people in Korea. 280 million or about 300 million in America here. Someone in our family needs Christ. God expects us to know about this. And lastly, God expects us to do something. Pray. He says pray. 
He expects us to do something. You see, nothing of eternal significance happens apart from prayer. Nothing happens apart from prayer. When Jesus was teaching in Matthew chapter 6, he began by saying, when you pray. He did not say, if you pray. He says, when you pray. There are things he said, he said, when you, if you sin, when you sin, or if you sin. But when it came to prayer, he said, when you pray. Because he was saying basically that prayer is supposed to be a part of our lives. And Jesus did not just, in Matthew chapter 6, did not just teach about prayer. You know, we call it often, we call that the lost prayer. But in reality, the lost prayer is actually in, Matthew, in John chapter 17. Here, it's, uh, Matthew chapter 6 is the disciples' prayer. Here he was teaching principles. That when you pray, he says, pray like this. You know, he taught them principles because he expects us to do something. It begins in prayer. Everything, nothing of eternal significance you, happens apart from prayer. When you watch the life of Jesus Christ in Mark, through the Gospel of Mark, Scripture tells us that he spent time in prayer. And that's why things happened around him. He taught them, he said, when you pray, pray like this. And the disciples came to him in Luke chapter 11, uh, verse 1 and 2. They says, Lord, they had watched him live his life. They had watched a life of prayer. They had watched a life of happenings around him. And they said, Lord, teach us to pray when they saw him praying. And he says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, he says, prayer is a relationship. You know, God expects us to do something. He expects us to relate with him. Because if anything will happen, it will happen in the context of our relationship with God. He expects us to do something. He expects us to pray. When we pray, things happen. Moses put himself in that situation in uh, in Exodus chapter 32, verse 2, it says, God, blot my name out. He, he, he stood in the gap. God expects us to stand in the gap. Paul did the same thing also in uh, Romans. He says, God, you know, I, I, for these people's sake, I'll, I'll, rather go, I'll rather perish so that they all will be saved. It's called standing in the gap. God expects us to stand in the gap. God expects us not just to know, he expects us to feel, and he expects us to do something. To do something. I can't make you see, I can't make you feel, I can't make, he can't make us do, but he can make, I can make you this morning to know something. And that's that there is a vast harvest out there. At the end of his life, you know, we're told of David that he fulfilled the purposes of God for his generation. You know, every one of us, we're not mere biological happenstance. We've been placed here for a reason. At the end of each of our lives, it will be said he died. What legacy are we living? I usually tell people that there are three stages in each of our lives. There's a survival stage, there's a success stage, and there's a significance Survival is when we're trying to get our head above the water. But survival could also be mental. We could have everything around us and still be living in a survival mode. Success is what we do for ourselves. When God has blessed us, we can take care of ourselves. Significance is what we do for others. And God expects us to live significantly. He expects us 
to live significant life. How do we live significant life? David, you know, Scripture tells us in Acts chapter 13, verse 36, that after he had fulfilled the purposes of God in his generation, he slept, he died. At the end of each of our lives, it will be said we died. David began his life this way in Psalms 136. Uh, it says, God will fulfill that which concerns me. But you see, true fulfillment begins as we align our lives with God. That's, what, that's how fulfillment comes. We begin to align our lives with God, and God begins to direct us. God calls us not just to know something, but to see something, to feel something, and to do something. What are we doing as a church? He says, the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. We may not all be called to go to Africa or go to the next city, but we're all called somehow. All of us, regardless of where we are, we're all called to go. We're all called to go. Somebody told me why I said, Brother Ernest, I'll go to Africa if God tells me to go. And I said, well, the last time I checked, he said go. Isn't that what the good book says? Say go. Can you imagine if we all obeyed that? We're all called to go, and we're called to go in three different ways. We're called to go in person. We're called to go through our purse or our wallet. We're called to go in prayer. Some of us are called to do this in all three. Some may just be able to do it in prayer or in person or through their given. But we're all called to go. I was moved this morning by the Armstrong uh, offering. We may not be able to go, but people like our brother in Puerto Rico can go on our behalf. We send them. This morning, I want to ask you, do you see something? Do you know something? Do you feel something? Are you doing something about it? Since the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers have few. God is calling us to go. Maybe God is calling you to go in person. There are opportunities around the world. Maybe God is calling you to go through prayers. Or maybe he's calling you to give through your giving. But he's calling us all to do something. Not just to feel, not just to know, but also to do something. More than 30 years ago, more than 40 years ago, I became a believer. And my life was dramatically changed. I was the first believer from my tribe, first Christian. I'd searched in religion. I became a Baha'i, became searching the Islamic faith, but there was no peace. Religion basically is man's effort to reach God. Then I heard, I came across a small Bible. I didn't have a Bible, didn't have much reading materials in that part of the world. But somebody came back from school, a cousin of mine came. He was given a Bible by some group, a small Bible, maybe it was a Gideon Bible. They came, I stole his Bible. And I'm not advocating stealing, but if you must steal, steal a Bible. And I began reading his Bible. In my Catholic tradition, I would kneel down in the evening and I said, God, I want to know you. And I began reading that Bible. And how many of you know when we seek God, he reveals himself to us? And a year later, while attending boarding school, somebody came and spoke to us from the book of John chapter 1. When he came to verse 11, he said, He came unto his own, but his own did not know him. 
that as many as received him, to them gave power to become sons of God. That evening I cried, not so much because I realized I was a sinner. I always knew I was a sinner, but I cried because for 13 long years, absolutely nobody has shared the gospel with me. And I said, now I know something. I feel something. I see something, but I must do something also. At the age of 15, I became the president of Fellowship of Christian Students. And the age of 17, I was pastoring. At the age of about 20, as I sought the Lord, God led me here. But I wasn't quite satisfied with being in America. I graduated from school, was working for Ford Motor Company, was realizing the great American dream, but there was some emptiness or something. I knew I had to do something. I thought of the multitude in my country who may not have the opportunity I have, and I just realized I must do something. God calls all of us not just to know something, not just to see something, not just to feel something, but to do something. Today the question is, what are you doing? What are you doing? Let's pray. challenge that's been placed before us by earnest in your holy word. 